This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Becca, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah. So introduce yourself for the, for the audience. Okay, so I am a consultant psychiatrist working in the NHS and privately, and my area of expertise is women's health. Um, mm-hmm. I've been doing that for a long time, about 20 years, and very much focusing on women through pregnancy uh, and things that can occur through pregnancy, so anxiety, depression, uh, birth trauma as well. And increasingly also, I practice in a very holistic way really, which is not yet very common in the NHS. Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with women or men, uh, we'd be having lots of discussions, not just about medication, therapy, but also about diet, exercise, their general sort of global mental health and aspirations. Mm. So you say men and women, is it mainly women? So I am an expert in women's mental health. I, I, right. I work primarily with women, mm-hmm. but I also see some men in the private setting that, that would be coming mainly from a corporate background with anxiety and stress and burnout yep. type presentations. Yeah, I'm sure there, all the things you've mentioned there are to some level or another experienced by a lot of our listeners. But I just want to come back to that, that when you mentioned holistic health, what does that mean to you? I think for me it means looking at somebody's health in all aspects. I think far too often in the NHS we we, we categorise people down into very niche specialities. So somebody does lungs or somebody <laughs> does eyes. And I think there's been a, a flaw in the way that sometimes that can mean in people's practice in that of course you need to train and have expertise about one particular area but you can't just treat somebody looking just at their lungs or their Mm. eyes so for me it's about having a really in-depth consultation with somebody and really hearing their story really so it may be that they're coming to me feeling anxious or not able to sleep but as part of a holistic health assessment i need to know not only about that not only about their symptoms but where they live, what they do, their relationships, their mm. their goals, their, how they eat, how much caffeine they drink. So it's about putting all of that together mm. in one assessment. And I think you, you really can't begin to think about creating a treatment plan with somebody until you understand all of those aspects because yeah. everything interplays. Yeah. You can't have mental health without physical health and vice versa. Yeah. So you just can't look at one tiny aspect and expect to understand that person. I love that and it, it obviously chimes, uh, you know, we, we're not medical professionals, with our Six Signals concept mm. of sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, fitness, digestion and they're, they're, they're all interlinked. You yeah. absolutely cannot separate them, but I love that approach, and I think it, it's it's very novel. And what I've just as a personal observation with the NHS is that it, in the, the things that I've I've heard about or my experience, it doesn't really address lifestyle. It's often like, what have you come in for? Let's just look at that in isolation. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's unfair. It's just my perception. But do you think that there's a, a trend within the NHS now, or a push, a drive to to start looking at things more holistically, or is that more your philosophy? I think there are certain areas where there's a, a drive perhaps to try and think more about these things, but I think it's very patchy and it's not consistent. And to me still, it's very much still a sort of 
an afterthought, oh, we should perhaps just ask about that. Mm. At the end, it's a kind of bolt-on couple of meaningless questions. Whereas to me, that should be at the forefront of the assessment. You know, it yeah. is part of the assessment. And I, and I wouldn't think that I'd assess somebody properly without having done that. Yeah. Um, you, you know, there are definitely some practitioners that are more holistically minded. And, you know, people working within the NHS are under huge time constraints. They often don't have the luxury of time to explore all these issues with people. Uh, you know, you've got 15 minutes, 30 minutes slot, you've got 15 people waiting. Mm. You, you might just have time to focus on their sore foot, not yeah. their diet. And, that, and that's understandable to a certain yeah. degree. Yeah, but, huge time but, pressure. But, but I also think that sometimes you have to make time. And, you know, the classic thing for me is the sort of door on the handle moment where that is where you will get. What, what the patient really wants to tell you. As so you've had a consultation, you yeah. as they stand up to leave, they put their hand on the door handle and they say, oh, and yeah. and that's what they want to tell you. And then you bring them back and you sit down again. And sometimes you have to run late and sometimes you have to give people an hour, an hour and a half because mm. the things that are being unsaid are often as important as yeah. the things that somebody's come to you with. Uh, we see that as well, actually. So if somebody will come, and this, this brings us to anxiety, which is what we we're gonna talk about. Um, in, in my profession, someone will come and they'll say, I want to lose X amount of weight. And when, when I unpick, and it could be in that consultation or it might be actually several weeks or months later, but when you actually get to the heart of what they really want, it's often nothing to do with the weight. But coming in and talking to a relative stranger about their anxiety is just too much. It's too big and too scary. But if I come in and put a weight goal in front of you, you're, not, you're going to say, well, okay, I get that. Mm. Everyone, you know, mm. everyone who's got a bit of weight wants to lose it. Mm. But actually what sits behind it is much bigger, much scarier, and that's the real thing. And we have that hand on the door handle moments, sometimes at the end of the consultation, and sometimes several weeks or several months in. Yeah, and, and you know, what's the basis of that for any, whatever field you're working in is about having given somebody time, having really listened to their story, mm. having really heard them, yeah. and having built a trusting relationship, and whatever forum you're working in, that's the basis of, it, of all of that, isn't it? It's about yeah. them feeling able to eventually tell you what's really going on, mm. and that takes time, and you know, the, uh, I think what worries me about the NHS is, is, is with all the pressures and demands is that people lose that skill of actively listening mm. and hearing what people are trying to tell them. Mm. And it's a real skill, actually, to listen to somebody, yeah. not to interrupt, you know, not to be pressured. I mean, there was a recent study, I think, from Harvard or Cornell that said that most consultations, the doctor will interrupt a patient within 23 seconds. And that if you just wait for 60 seconds, if you just give a patient a minute to talk freely, you will actually come quicker to actually what they really want from you. Really? Yeah, but so people are so driven to sort of get the questions asked and mm. you know that it, it gets lost actually with the mm. meaning of why somebody is really there. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I definitely think we've lost the skill of active listening to an extent, but I equally want to acknowledge the pressure that the NHS doctors are no, under. No, I mean, so I work in the NHS, obviously, yeah. so I can completely understand that uh, pressure, and it's not about yeah. bashing the NHS. I think the NHS is utterly wonderful. Yeah, likewise. Um, and does amazing things day in, day out, mm. um, and it's just a reflection of, of pressures on people. Yeah. 
Okay, well, let, let's come to anxiety because that's we were going to talk specifically about anxiety in women, but mm. I guess that could equally be applied in a lot of cases to men as mm. well. Um, the big scary goal that sits behind the weight loss one in my instance is it's nearly always mental health, mm. stress, anxiety, depression, burnout, or some you know, or some mixture of that. Mm. Is that what you typically find? And behind the physical symptoms, I mean, yeah. lies mental health symptoms. Yeah, often. I mean, anxiety is unbelievably common. It's far mm. more common in women than men, unfortunately. Why women do you think have, that is? Um, I mean, I think it's not clear why why it is. It's it's most likely multifactorial. That I think there will be some genetic links there, but women are much more likely to have anxiety than men. I think perhaps it's about the pressures that women put on themselves often. Mm. If you think of your modern woman who's got a high-flying job, who's a mum to young children, who's juggling... Well, that awful expression, uh, you know, having it all. Yes, or, or not, as oh. the case may be. Oh. But, you know, it's women, I think, are very good at putting themselves under pressure yeah. and being very self-critical and being very tough on themselves. And I think society's very good at backing um, that And right I think that, well. that feeds into anxiety. Why, yeah. why wouldn't it? Um, but certainly, you know, it's unbelievably common, anxiety. It's not of always clinically diagnosable, you know, at, at a degree that is a clinical episode, but personally I don't think that matters to me. I think what matters is how something is impacting on someone's life, how distressing it is to them. And, you know, it doesn't really matter the label you give that, whether it's stress, anxiety, burnout. Mm. If it's causing an impact for someone, and it's something that we need to think about and address. Yeah. And, it, and yes, it can very often present in physical symptoms. So, you know, people might come to me with migraines, headaches, tension, neck pain, jaw pain, fatigue. Mm. Uh, unbelievably common for people to present with, with physical complaints that actually are a manifestation of something else. Mm. Um, and again, that's m more common in women than men. Mm. Um, men, you know, classically will have a maladaptive coping mechanism, so they might be drinking heavily or smoking, or and, and women can do that as well. But it's much more common for women to present with physical symptoms that are actually anxiety underneath. Mm. Perhaps that's because, uh, in, in generalised terms, men are less likely to come to the doctor. Yeah. Uh, less yeah. likely to certainly put their hand up. Although there's quite a, you know, there's a campaign going on at the moment, um, and I think more awareness that men need to start talking. Mm. Is I believe suicide is the biggest, the biggest of killer of men. <coughs> Excuse me, it's the biggest uh, cause of death for young men. Yeah. It used to be older men, but now unfortunately it's there's a growing trend for young men. So mm. women will self harm, but m young men will actually kill themselves. Mm. Yeah. yeah, horrendous. So, I mean, there is awareness, increasing awareness now of men being able to speak up. But So we've talked about some of the, the signs of, of anxiety. What are some of the, the recommendations you make? How do you help people through mm. anxiety? I, mean, I think uh, alongside the signs we've talked about, you know, obviously there are all the physical symptoms, but I think other things, common things, just briefly that women, you know, will mm. often think, report is difficulty in sleeping, um, you know, going to sleep or waking in the middle of the night and not able to fall back to sleep. Um, difficulty in functioning at work, so just feeling you can't focus, you feel very overwhelmed by things that normally you would have breezed through. Mm. Um, feeling 
low in mood, feeling irritable, irritated, arguing more with people around you. Mm. Um, or sometimes there can be, you know, absolute overwhelming physical anxiety in terms of panic attacks. So feeling short of breath, feeling breathless, butterflies, feeling your heart racing, feeling you're going to die in that moment. So mm. those are all things that can sit alongside sort of physical complaints mm. as well. So I think the biggest thing is, is you know, just for somebody to stop and pause and recognise what's actually happening to begin with. Because sometimes someone sitting in front of you will often come in and say, you know, my husband's worried about me or, you know, this happened at work. But they've not actually paused and thought to themselves, let's just have a think about what is actually happening. I think sometimes we'll start by thinking about, well, when did this start? How long it's you know, how long has it been going on for? Is there anything else that's changed in your life that's particularly stressful at the moment? Understanding how that person's functioning at work. Mm. Um, you know, have they had episodes like this in the past? Is there a family history of anxiety or depression? Are there any medical illnesses running alongside that could be causing this? So, you know, thyroid function in women, mm. low vitamin D levels, magnesium levels, those can all mimic anxiety so it's a really holistic sort of approach to look at all of that understand how somebody's eating sleeping doing at work um, what exercise are they doing how do they cope if they feel anxious what are their coping strategies at the moment and do they work are they any good mm. you know what how do they feel how, what are they thinking when they feel anxious you know, and that would take a good hour, an hour and a half, to really sort of map that all out. Mm. And sometimes it's the first time that somebody's ever stopped and thought about that. And sometimes people can very quickly make links and say, oh, yes, look, this has happened and now I'm not sleeping. And so it can be really powerful just having that hour to really yeah, map very. it all out <laughs> and, and have it all on paper. And then people can go away and read it and think about it. Mm. And sometimes for people that's too much. It feels difficult to see that on paper and, and that's completely understandable. But for most people it's really helpful, it's a real relief mm. to stop and pause and think about it and then think, well how are we going to think about addressing that? Mm. And sometimes very tiny simple things can make a huge change and, and really impact on people and, and they can start to feel better mm. very so quickly. Well, things like, you know, good sleep hygiene, for, for example, if somebody's, you know, doing not, not looking after themselves in terms of their sleep, so getting into a good sleep routine, you know, winding down, setting a bedtime, sticking with that, mm. might be reducing caffeine intake, alcohol intake. Um, often we will, you know, I would screen people blood test wise, so it might be as simple as correcting vitamin D or mm. magnesium. We'll talk about diet, so simple changes to diet can make a huge impact. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the biggest one is just to build a little bit of tiny exercise into your week, and that can have a huge difference immediately. Often, you know, women I'm working with, they, they have young children, they have busy jobs, and they have no space in their week for them. And I would prescribe that to them as a part of their treatment. I would say this is part of your Brilliant. treatment. Yeah. This is not me just saying, go and do an, a nice yoga class. This is your treatment, mm. is to find a space, sit down with your partner, identify a space where an hour, half an hour, once or twice a week, not five days a week, which is going to be unrealistic and make you feel more stressed, yeah. once a week and commit and that is your time and you whatever gives you joy, do that. 
whether it's dancing around the house to some music, going for a walk, doing yoga, swimming, whatever you love and inspire, or reading a book, you mm. know, whatever it is that inspires you, do that. And, and invariably within a few weeks, that becomes such a precious mm. thing, and then it becomes a habit, and then they manage to find another hour, which is brilliant, and you know, it, yeah. it's tiny things that seem you know, so simple, but are unbelievably powerful and can make a huge change really quickly. Mm. One of the, the biggest problems I see people making with exercise is thinking they need big chunks of time mm, mm. and thinking it needs to be yeah. Lycra gym membership, yeah. at least an hour. Yeah. It doesn't. As you said, dancing around the house. Yeah, and you yeah. know me, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a yoga nut. I mean, my yoga practice is, is religious for me. I just can't function without it. I walk. So I will schedule in appointments so that I can walk to and fro home visits. Mm. So I'm building walking time in. Yeah. But also I do a lot of stuff at home. So I will do a five minute hit session in the morning before the kids have woken up, five minutes of my mm. day. Or I will do a five minute headspace meditation. Mm. You know, these are, you don't have to have hours and hours. You don't even have to leave your home. It doesn't have to cost you any money. Yeah. You know, there there is a, wealth of stuff out there really yeah. high quality stuff that you can use yeah and i try to get women to start with those very small chunks of time because you know when you're anxious anyway everything feels very overwhelming so the thought of adding something else in can just seem too much so an hour is probably going to seem like an insurmountable thing mm. so take five minutes yeah. do whatever you love for that five minutes and then it will gradually build and build. And then you'll have that lovely thing where women start to recognize that they are worth self-caring about mm -hmm. and that it should be a priority for them. And they will build it more and more and more into their day-to-day yeah. -day life. I think women with children as well, it's, it's showing the children. And this equally applies to men. Whoever is, you know, whichever parent seems, seems stressed or needs this, I think it's important for children to see that parent putting some investment into themselves because actually, that is going to have a very positive effect on the children seeing that. Mm. That it's important mm. to make time to look after yourself, it's important to exercise. And the children see that and they see their parents taking care of themselves and yeah. it's very important. Yeah, I mean my children now just know that Tuesday night is yoga night, you know, that that's what I do on a Tuesday and that's my thing and I love it and it, you know, they just accept it as part of their week. And I think, you know, it's so many things is I want them to see me looking after myself, that I am worthy of looking after myself, that exercise should be part of our life. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot in, you know, in my house about being strong and healthy and fit, not about weight. You know, we, we, we talk about using our bodies and, and that we need to use them as much as we use our minds and exercise them. Um, and I think, you know, that needs to start really, really early on. Mm. Um, and also, you know, I think it's important for children to recognise that sometimes as much as I love my children and adore them, I want to be on my own. <laughs> and I want, you know, I am worthy of an hour on my own yeah. and some time for me. And if I didn't have that, I, you know, personally, that's really important to me. And, you know, they, they get that, you know, that I adore them, but, you know, I'm just going to go off and have an hour on yeah, my own. You can't miss much. them if they won't go away. You know, and you know, that's, that's good, that's healthy, that's, yeah. that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. You know. And you know, I see that playing out with them in that you know they will go up and spend an hour quite happily on their own and enjoy that, and I think that's really positive mm. thing. Yeah.
Definitely. I want to pick up on something you said um, a while ago about butterflies in the stomach being mm. a symptom. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, is one of the manifestations of, of the gut and yeah. what we consider to be the second brain. Mm. Just talk a little bit about that, because there's a lot more awareness now, isn't there, of, yeah. of your microbiome and the impact that can have on things like anxiety. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at all the research at the moment, that is the absolute hot topic, mm. is the switch. And it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. So, you know, I think some people would say it's not even your second brain, it's your first brain. Mm. Um, they would challenge you on that. So, you know, more serotonin in your gut than in your brain. Yeah. Some people even think that the gut perhaps leads the brain, not the other way around. But, you know, all those things we talk about, you know, um, your gut feelings, your, mm -hmm. you know, you can completely understand where that comes from. Mm. I mean, I think it's really, really interesting area of research and it's evolving at a massively rapid rate. So something that I tell you today is going to be out of date by next week. Mm. But I think for me, I definitely would talk to people about that and would think about all that sort of having a good microbiome as part of treatment again which again is all the sort of pre and probiotics um, and using those in your diet, which are very easy, simple things to do. Mm. Um, you can get them in tablet form. I'm, I'm cycling my probiotics so yeah. over a month of taking a couple of tablets a day and then a month off and a month yeah. on, a month off. So I'm, I'm kind of cycling because... I think that's brilliant. I mean, I think for some women, again, that can feel like something else to have to add in. And, and you know, so often I would just say, look, you know, let's let, don't even do that. Let's think about prebiotics even. Mm. So just use loads of onion and garlic, yeah. you know, just, just cook. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there should are, be the first. You know, there are, you, you can start just with simple food yeah. tips for people. And then obviously some people will, you know, are very drawn to that side of, of medicine and will end up having lots of testing and, and um, you know, you supplement a lot. But I think, you know, even something like saying, look, once or twice a week, have something that's very garlicky or, you know, cook mm. a lot with onions. For most people, that's a really simple, easy thing to change that's mm. going to affect your gut health. Mm. And then you can go, you know, all your fermented foods and some people will get really into it. and. You know that's brilliant but for, if you're feeling anxious and very overwhelmed just with all things start with tiny tiny changes that mm. are realistic and are not going to add to you feeling too stressed mm. okay so we've talked about exercise food is a really powerful one which we've yeah. just touched on very very lightly yeah. but yeah i think the can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between food and mood because it's profound isn't it yeah, I mean that's that's and a whole <laughs> podcast in its um, and more. It's a whole itself. series of podcasts. I mean, in, in in essence, of course, you know everything you eat will impact on your mood. The, the the other flip side is, you know, commonly what I would see with people with anxiety is is dramatic changes in the way they eat. So you'll either have positive a, or no, not usually. So you'll either have a real loss of appetite because you feel so anxious all the time you can't swallow, you feel sick when you eat. So people can lose huge amounts of weight because they just feel so agitated they can't physically sit to eat. Mm. That's a really common presentation. Or you will have people comfort eating to soothe that restlessness, that anxiety. Mm. So the way they soothe is is eating. And is so, that also linked with serotonin in the gut? Yes, they think so, possibly. So so you will so I will often see women where they've put on huge amounts of weight because they're just overeating and they know mm. it's they know what they're doing. They know it's not healthy, but mm. you know, in that moment of feeling agitated and overwhelmed they they can't stop. Um, well, I guess what, what you want to do in your feeling that way 
is change how you feel. Yeah, and, and the, the quickest, quickest way, way to do it, chocolate bar. Or, yeah. you know, is to sell. Or for food. others, it might be a drink. Or, yes, absolutely. Or, but for, yeah. for many or people, it's, it's you food. know, it's and food it's, is very available and it's kind of acceptable. A drink in the morning is not. Yeah. Whatever yeah. else people might be using, so food is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. food is a massive one. So that's really common to see people either lost a lot of weight or gained a lot of weight and they're using food in a really unhealthy way. Mm. Um, and then clearly when they're comfort eating, then usually it tends to be poor food choices at that in that moment. They're not comfort eating by cooking a vast vegetable mm. curry. Mm. They typically tend to be eating, you know, processed food high carb, high sugar, so you get that immediate rush of feeling a bit better, but then that crash afterwards. Um, so that's, you know, a whole discussion about that, trying to sort of bring them back to better uh, food choices and trying to encourage them to think about what they're eating more. Mm. Sometimes, you know, I do work with um, nutritionists as well, so if, if food is a huge part of it, then sometimes I will ask women to meet with a nutritionist as well to really um, explore that with them because that needs some really careful thought. And a lot of women may have prior eating disorders as well, sitting in the background of that. So, you know, often a very complicated long-term relationship with food, mm. even underneath this new loss of appetite or, or mm. comfort eating. So it's a massive part of the consultation food, It's which is why I say when, you know, people don't think about that, you can't be offering a proper holistic treatment really because mm. it, it's one of the commonest manifestations I would say is people's appetite and their eating patterns mm. and how your mental health would affect that. Yeah. What about the role that hormones play? Yeah, so I mean hormonal testing is not something that's widely done in, in the NHS at the moment. So most people coming with anxiety say wouldn't wouldn't have any kind of hormonal profile done right. unless say they were perimenopause coming up to menopause mm -hmm. then possibly they might I mean I think it's it's a key part to mm. understand I would encourage anyone that I'm working with to have a sort of baseline hormonal function test carried out what just so that we know where we're at yeah um, and you know checked so cortisol cortisol's I have mixed views on cortisol. I think sometimes it can be really, really helpful. So, you know, we would typically do a sex hormone profile for men or women because I've had a lot of men, for example, where it's picked up a low testosterone. Mm. And that's been really helpful to know that, you know, that's in the mix. Mm. Um, so we do a sex hormone profile, you know. Um, so testosterone for men, estrogen for women. Yeah. Yeah. So FSH, LH, they would typically add into the hormonal profile for women as well. Okay. Cortisol, yes, absolutely, you know, would would consider. Um, thyroid function, obviously, mm. would, would, would do. Um, and that's really important. And we do the more sensitive thyroid functioning. You know, in the NHS, you just they just measure TSH, T4, T3, mm. whereas you would do a more sophisticated one because a lot of women have subclinical thyroid function. So low performing thyroid. Yes, yeah. well, usually low, but you know, they sit at the sort of real extremes of normal in terms of thyroid function. Right. So sometimes trialing a tiny dose can make a huge impact to how they're feeling. Mm. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, also, we'd always want to do vitamin D yeah. for, for, for anyone that we're working with, particularly thinking about mood and anxiety and magnesium as well, we would always do. Mm. And I'd really want everybody to have had those baseline tests. CRP is, is you know, is a, as an inflammatory marker. There's a lot of thought about depression being an inflammatory disorder, which is a model that I really think has, can probably have some weight, and I can see how that could be the case for a lot of depressive episodes. So depression being a symptom of inflammation. Yes. So depression being a, an inflammatory gut. disorder, which yeah. all links with the gut. And yeah. Um, so CRP is, is, a, is a very crude marker of inflammation in the body, but there's been quite a lot of nice recent studies showing that it's markedly elevated in people with anxiety and depression. Mm. It's very easy to track over time. It's a very cheap test. Um, so I think, you know, I would probably, increasingly I'm likely to include that as well. Um, and then glucose testing as well, mm. you know, you'd want to, to have. Sugar levels, yeah. 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 yeah, and I, I really think that in a you know in a gold standard, every everybody should have those as a baseline at least once, and and end of treatment to see if there's been variation. And because so many women will be say magnesium deficient or mm-hmm. particularly post birth, you know, so when so many women in the early postnatal period will be depleted in a lot of these areas, and it's so easy to correct, mm. you know. B12 as well probably would be one yeah. that we would always want to test. Okay, we're coming up on time, but I think, and I certainly used to get anxiety mixed up with stressed. Yeah. And I think there's yeah. a certain acceptability in some people's mm-hmm. minds to say mm-hmm. I'm stressed is okay, but I'm yeah. anxious or it's a yeah. bit vulnerable. Is there any difference? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, I think, you know, we, we can all feel stressed at times. We can all feel anxious at times. Um, you know, some stress is good stress, isn't it? You know, we need it yeah. to turn on for performance and we would expect to be stressed pre a job interview or yeah, a major exercise. life event. Exactly, and, and that's a good thing, you know, it's a positive thing. I think anxiety, again, we can all feel anxious at times. And I think what, what we're differentiating between is, you know, an, an occasional episode of anxiety in a, cont- in a context where it makes sense and it, and it, and it ends when that scenario is removed. Mm. So, you know, I, I don't particularly like public speaking, so I might feel a bit anxious standing up in front of a conference of 200 people, expect to feel anxious, but the moment the lecture's finished and it's gone okay, my anxiety will subside. That's mm. a normal anxiety. Mm. Where it becomes abnormal is, is about the persistence of it, the pervasiveness of it. So if every day you're waking feeling anxious and it's lasting for most of the day, or you're not sleeping every night, or you're feeling on edge all the time, or you feel tense in your body all the time, then that's something different, isn't it? That's creeping into being a daily mm. thing. Then that is more meaningful, I mm. think. You know, you can't, you can say, well, I haven't got anything stressful on this week. It's a normal working week, but I just feel wired yeah. and terrible and anxious and on edge and can't sleep and can't eat. Well, that's something different. So mm. it's about it you know, not being a discrete episode, it's about it creeping in slowly to everyday life and feeling like I feel like that actually most days and most of the time. Mm. That's that's something different. Mm. That's Great. something that, you know, I think people should reach out at that point and speak to somebody and say, oh, actually, you know, this is happening for me. Because there are so many areas where you can get good support now. You know, I really don't 
want anyone listening to think that it just means going to your GP and having a tablet given to you because there's so many things that you can do mm. before that even without seeing a professional if you don't want to see one you know changing your diet changing your exercise or or you know maybe seeing a therapist mm. but please don't think that you know that is the only choice and option because I think that's something people are really fearful of mm. that I'll go to see my GP and they'll just give me a prescription yeah. and that's really not not the case brilliant Thank you very much. It's been fascinating. I think we should perhaps do a part two on the gut, which is a particular yes, interest absolutely. of mine. Oh, so. Part two, three, four, five, six by that point. Yes, you are. absolutely. All right. Thank you, Becca. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, help us to reach more people by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. We would really appreciate that and it would help us to spread the good word even further. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next show.